That's my goal. The second goal that I have is number one, is the second, I mean, we want to see the perfect gift and understand what that perfect gift is. And I know the Sunday school answer is Jesus. I get that. Well, what's the perfect gift? Jesus. Okay, but there's more to it than that. Um, and then another goal I've got is for some of us who struggle reading our Bibles, we read our Bible and we're like, what, what am I missing? And we try to read between the lines and try to find some hidden meaning. No, the scripture says what it says. It means what it means. But I, I, I pray that we've, un, we've, we've pulled back some layers to the word of God this morning. And uh, so buckle up, buttercup. We're going to hit the ground running. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Um, but we're just going to have some fun. At least I will. I don't know if you're going to have fun, but I'm going to have fun. And we'll enjoy it together. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, this is an often quoted verse. You see it on billboards and signs and sporting events. We see it everywhere. Um, it's the most looked up verse in, in the entire Bible. Um, it's the most memorized verse in the entire Bible. But Lord, I don't know for sure that everybody fully understands the implications of it. And so Lord, I pray that we will look at this verse with, with fresh eyes. And Lord, that we'll leave here understanding, Lord, the the perfect gift, Lord, that you have given us, and Lord, that we're celebrating um, this season. So, Lord, I pray um, that you will guide and speak, and Lord, that uh, your word will go forth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, when you get to John 3.16, I, I think sometimes we can, we can make verses and view verses as if they're Proverbs, because it's quoted so many times, we've missed the context. Of, of what it is, and I don't want to read all 15 verses lining, lining, leading up to this, but I do want you to notice in verses 1 and 2, there's this guy named Nicodemus who sneaks in and he comes to find Jesus by night, right, because he doesn't want to be seen. He's a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to him and he tells, he tells Jesus basically, hey, you got to be from God because only somebody from God can do the things that you're doing, and Jesus cuts right to the heart of the issue. He doesn't say, hey, I'm not from God. He doesn't say anything like that, but I want you to see what he says here in verse 3. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There needs to be a regeneration, right? You must be born again, Nicodemus, and you're a, you're a ruler of the Jews, and so you're, he's a Pharisee, and he would have known the law, and he would have known all the 613 laws that the Jews are supposed to be keeping. He would have, he would have known it all by heart, and yet the Lord, in the midst of this, this conversation, just cuts the mustard and says, okay, you need to understand something, Nick. You need to get born again. And of course, Nick is having a hard time, Nicodemus, is having a hard time. I tend to abbreviate names in the Bible. But, so he's having a hard time understanding this. He goes, hey, I think mom, my mom's going to have a problem with that. And he goes, well, I don't think you're getting the point. You have physical birth and you have spiritual birth. You see that in verses five and, five and six. But then he he's takes it a step further. And I want you to go all the way to verse 13. He takes it a step. And this verse is just an amazing verse. And I think it gets lost in the shadow of verse 16. Verse 13. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, and no man hath ascended up to heaven. Right? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now, if you are a Bible student, you would understand that phrase, Son of Man, has to do with the physical kingdom of God and has to do with Daniel chapter 7 and the prophecy that Jesus Christ is coming again the second time. 
So he's referencing a second coming, but he's also referencing the first coming. He says, listen, no one's gotten to God. And you might be thinking, yeah, but what about Enoch? What about Elijah? They didn't get there on their own. No man in the history has ever been able to ascend to get into God's throne room. Now, they tried in Babylon. They tried in Babel, right? Genesis chapter 11. And of course, they failed. And so he's making the point, listen, man couldn't get to God, but God came down to man. That's the point he's making in verse 13. Now, he's still talking to Nicodemus. It's just these two cats talking. Verse, verse 14. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember the whole, whole thing you read about in the book of Numbers where they lift up the brazen serpent? He says, hey, I'm the fulfillment of that, verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that. We, we do that in, in a classroom setting on Wednesday nights. All right, so now he shifts gears and goes into verse 16. He says, for God so loved the world. So everything he just said, he uses that word for, is the culmination. It is the, it is the exclamation point. It is the, it is the end result of everything he's just said in verses 1 to 15. Does everybody understand that? And he's saying this to one man, Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hey, Nicodemus, this has, this has more implications for you for sure, but also for all of mankind. He's letting him know this isn't just a Jewish thing. This is a, this is a worldwide thing. This isn't just a you thing, Nicodemus. This is, this is a worldwide thing. All right, so... He lays out for us the fact that man can't get to heaven. Only God can come from heaven and come down on a rescue mission for man. And so when I just sit back, he says, for God so loved the world that he, what's the very next word? Gave. Well, what did he give? He gives a gift. That's what giving means. Giving implies a gift. But he doesn't just give a gift. He gives the perfect gift. And so if you're taking notes, you got to get this. Perfect gifts require a giver. You came to church for that one. Did you know that? Perfect gifts require a giver. It's not just anybody. It doesn't say, and a gift came to man. What does it say? God gave the gift. And it was motivated out of his love. So I want to break that down into two points. The first one is this, who God is. Think about that. When was the last time you just sat back and you contemplated and you thought and you studied about who God is? Because he said, for God so loved. When you use the word God, right? You automatically think, okay, creator, right? God of the universe. You automatically think that, at least you, you should. But man, there's a lot to that. Who God is? Who is God? Think about it. I just sat back and I grabbed my paper and I just began to write and I began to chase down references and it went forever and ever and ever. This is the God that gave the gift. Right? So when they think of who God is, he's creator, isn't he? He's holy. He's mighty. The Bible says he's love and he is light. He is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. God is my help. God is wise. He is my father. He is just. He is a consuming fire. He is merciful. He is almighty. He is eternal. He is king of kings and he is lord of lords. He is savior. He is my hiding place. He is deliverer. He is my high tower. He is pure and he is sovereign. He is good. He is faithful. He is merciful. He is gracious and he is my salvation. And the list goes on and on. That's who God is. 
But the second part of this is who God loves. Because it says, for God so loved the world. Now, I want you to see the juxtaposition here. Because we just laid out who God is when he says he loves the world. Who's the world? The exact opposite of the list we just gave. Would you agree with that? In fact, check this out. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, for we ourselves also were sometimes, this is who you were apart from Christ. This is who everybody you know who does not know Christ. And maybe this is you today. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving the diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. We could have chose a host of verses to go to this. But it says, for God so loved the world, what's he loving? He's loving the foolish. He's loving the disobedient. He's loving those who are wrapped up in their lust. He's loving those who, who hate. Think about that for a moment. In other words, he's loving a dying and hopeless world. He's loving a world that's full of sinners and those who are enemies against him. Wow. Think about that just for a moment. So it requires a giver for sure, who God is and then who God loves. There's a great chasm between the two, isn't there? Massive chasm between the, the juxtaposition between a holy God and an unholy me is huge. And so the next thing I have for you is that perfect gifts require a gift. Just think about that one just for a moment. It requires a gift. It says that he gave. Now, just off to the side, you might want to write this down. This is important to get. This is a gift that has already been given. Doesn't say he's giving a gift. Doesn't say present tense. It says he gave. This is a gift that already exists. This is a gift that's already been given. Well, who did he give it to? He loved, so loved the world that he gave the implications. He gives it to the world, but it requires a gift. And God's perfect gift is himself. That's his gift. That's your blank. God's perfect gift is himself, that he gave. What was the answer to Nicodemus? Hey, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, how can I do that? My mom's going to have a problem with that. I know my mom would have a problem with that. Hey, mom, in order to get right with Jesus, I need to be born again. Go find a surrogate. Go find somebody else because this ain't working. And God says, God says no, Jesus makes it very clear. Listen, this is a spiritual birth because you died spiritually in the garden with Adam and Eve. There needs to be a spiritual birth, a regeneration that needs to take place, a virgin birth needs to transpire for you. That's what happens when we get born again. All right, so isn't that interesting? But then he says in verse 13, well, no one can get to, nobody can get to God on their own, and so God has to come down on a rescue mission for man. So the perfect gift is God himself. Now, here's what I love about this. Check this out, Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. You see that creation that we look at every single day that we interact with on the daily, the, the stars and the sky and the clouds and the tornadoes, and the, the wrath of God, the judgments of God, the green grass, you know, the drought and, and, and the famine, you name it all. All of creation, the Bible says, 
it clearly is seen, it reveals, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. That when you look at creation, you ought to come to the conclusion that there is a God. In fact, the Bible says that everybody has come to the conclusion that there's a God, whether they want to accept him or not, is a different story. So that they are without excuse. All right, so just think about this. So if God's perfect gift is himself, then we have to know that he exists. And how do we know that he exists? It's through his creation. And so God reveals himself to us through his creation. But it's not enough that we can look at creation, recognize that there's a God, right? So if we come to this conclusion, wow, this didn't just happen. This couldn't just evolve. There's too much intricacy. This must be created. I wonder who did it. That's why you have Genesis chapter one and verse one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The very first verse of your Bible is God answering the question that every single one of us has. We've all come to the realization that God exists. A God, we don't know what his name is, and then he introduces himself to us through his word. The reason you have your Bible is because God wants us to know him. Is this making sense? So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But if you just keep reading your Bible, you're going to get to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and those are those 613 laws that God writes. Well, here's what God does. He separates himself from man through his law. And you see this in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. He says, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. And so how are we supposed to know right from wrong? Well, God puts it in his book. And so as we read the word of God and the word of God reads us, we realize, wait a second, this is God's standard of holiness. This is God's standard of righteousness. And there's no way that I can attain unto that. Can we all agree to that? You ever just read your Bible and going, yeah, I'm not doing that one. I'm having a hard time measuring up to this. And then we end up starting beating ourselves up. The idea of the law is to point out the fact that we are unholy and he is holy. That is God's standard of holiness. And if you can keep all the law, then you get to be in his presence. But the Bible makes it very clear. You mess up in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. And there's not a soul on the planet that can do that. Amen? And so God in, reveals himself to his creation. He introduces himself to us through his word. He separates himself from creation through his law. Like, great, I can't measure up. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. There's no possible way for me to do that. Well, then God takes it a step further because he says, okay, not only do I have the law written in a book, I also wrote it in your heart. So check this out in, in Romans, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, this is where God says, not only am I giving you all of that, but what about those who don't have access to my book? What about those who don't have access to my law? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write it upon their heart. I'm going to give them a conscience. So check this out, verse 14. He says, for when the Gentiles, that's you, that's me, that's anybody who's not Jewish and not saved. So when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, people know right from wrong without a Bible. Would you all agree with that? We know it's not right to cheat and to steal and to kill and all those things. We just know what's right from wrong. How do we know that? The law of God is written on our hearts. I say, when people do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves. Verse 15, he says, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. 
You ever just been doing your own thing, living your own life? And then your conscience just goes, whew, I don't, I don't think that was right the way that I talked to my mom. I don't know that that was right the way I smacked my brother in the throat, right? I don't think that was right the way I did this or I stole that or whatever. No, your conscience convicts you. And you realize, wait, there's something wrong with me. And so when somebody comes to you and says, hey, there's a God out there who desperately loves you, and, and then we come to either two conclusions. Well, I can make an excuse to him, end of the verse, or I can accuse. And there are thoughts that meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So we either make excuses before this holy God or we make accusations to God. Well, if God didn't make me that way or whatever it may be. So when we come face to face with reality that God exists, and we come face to face with reality that I am not God, because here's, here, here's the deal. You know what God does by putting the law inside of our conscience and putting it inside of us? He's letting us know that we can't keep it, no matter how much we possibly try. And the proof is in the pudding. How many of you have ever made a law for yourself and you broke it? In other words, I'm only going to eat one meal a day for a while. Like, that works for 12 hours. Because next thing you know, what do you do? You make an excuse. Well, it's just this one time. You don't understand how hungry I really am. If I would have been thinking, I would have made that rule for myself, knowing how much I had going on. So what do we do? We justify it. We make excuses and we break our own law. Right? Or as Job says, hey, I'll make a covenant with myself that I want to think upon a maid. Well, young men, we have to make that covenant every day, don't we? That I'm not going to think upon a maid. We make that law. I'm not going to think about her. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to search that. And then what happened? Broke your law, didn't you? We set laws for ourselves all the time, and we break them all the time. And we often blame, God, if it wasn't for your law being so hard, you can't even keep your own law. Come on. You're blaming God for his law being too stringent. Be careful. And so he, he does all those things. He separates us, and then he gets us a conscience, and so there's nobody that can say, well, I just didn't know. No, you knew. You knew right from wrong, for sure. All right, so how does God give this perfect gift of himself? I mean, how is it possible for God to give us what we desperately need? The perfect gift man needs is that God come on a rescue mission. Well, how is that possible? Here's how. Next point. God's perfect gift is his son. Because he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. So God had to come to sinful man. Right? In fact, Jesus even says this in John 14, 6. In John 14, 6, he says, And he saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Side note. No man doesn't say goes to heaven. What's it say? Cometh unto the Father. And so salvation is not getting at, is not about getting access to heaven. Salvation is about getting access to God. That's what salvation is. This holy God that's revealed himself, that's introduced himself, that's given us his standard of holiness and righteousness, that we realize, okay, God's holy, I'm not. How can I ever be in his position? How can I ever be in his place? Jesus is the perfect gift because he stands in my place. Amen? You, you missed a hallelujah, amen moment. You just missed it, right? Like that's the best news on the entire planet and it just went, old news, old news. 
I know that. Oh, do you? Do you understand what salvation is? Do you understand what he means when he says this in John chapter 3 and verse 16? Don't give me no fake amen. I don't need none of that. Amen. Okay, whatever. This is huge. So I want you to understand right here, this is important, that when he says his only begotten son, and I know we spent some time on this last year, but for those who weren't here, you got to get this. God gave us a virgin-born son. That's your point. God gave us a virgin-born son. That's what we're celebrating. Merry Christmas. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So here's Jesus who is born. He's born without Adam's fallen sin nature. He's born separate from a, a father sowing the seed to, to bring him. Why? Because he has to fulfill prophecy that Zedekiah's seed line is cut off. Or so there's a new guy in town. His name is Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah. So God has to give us not just a son, but it has to be a virgin-born son. God's not just showing off. It has to be a virgin-born birth. All right, so not only is he virgin-born, but here's the second thing. God gives us a sinless son. God gives us a sinless son because that son fulfilled the law that nobody else could keep. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. That's the God that I serve. This is Jesus, this God that came on a rescue mission, was born of a virgin. He lived a full 33 and a half years without sin. But you got to get this next point. God gave us a virgin born son, but God gave us a sin, sinless son, but he also gave us a sinful son. Well, how can he be sinless and sinful? Well, here's how. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. He didn't know sin. And so when they whipped him and beat him and flogged him and, and caused the blood to flow, and they had him carry his cross and they carried him up to Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross and they raised him up in that moment as the cross is falls, and he's gasping for air. He's going through, you're like, this is Christmas, not Easter. No, it's all of it. He's gasping for air. He became the embodiment of sin. He gave you a sinful son. And not just sin, he became your sin, your lust, your lying tongue, your hate. He became the pedophile. He became the rapist. He became the murderer. He became it all. He became sin, and God has to turn his back and reject him. He became the propitiation, biblical word for stood in your place. We need to have this son. I have to have that guy. I have to have a virgin-born son. I have to have a sinless sacrifice. I have to have a sinful son. But more than that, I have to have a sacrificed Son, that's your next point. Sacrificed son. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest standeth daily 
ministering and, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, look at this, which can never take away sin. So in a, in a Jewish context, in the temple economy, there was no possible way for a Jewish individual to have all of their sin forever taken away. Could not happen, was never done. All those sacrifices, every single one of them was a reminder, you're a sinner, we're going to cover your sin with the blood of a lamb, but we'll see you next time because you're going to do it again. And it's a constant reminder of our sin. And so every year they would come. And every time they had a sacrifice, every time they had to make an offering, they would come and the priest would do this. It was a constant reminder to them that it could never take away sins. But, love that word in scripture, verse 12, but this man, what man? The virgin born, the sinless son, the sinful son. This man became the sacrifice after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Great phrase. One sacrifice Four sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's why John said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the whole world. Not just covered it. You see, they would have understood that. All they've ever known are lambs that cover sin and not take it away. All right, so more than that, you know what happens. So he lays down his life. He becomes that sacrifice, that the lamb that was the slain. All right, take it one step further. Then God gave us a resurrected son. Praise the Lord. Because all of that's great news. Would you agree with me? That's all great news? Great, great news. Great gift. But without a resurrection, it's like getting a toy without the batteries. Right? You ever happened that? Yeah, you get your toy, you're like all excited, like, oh, I want to play with it. Ah, oh, battery's not included, and every store's closed. Good luck with you. And they're all like D-sized batteries back in the day, you know? Like, who's carrying that? Not true value down the block. You got to drive an hour. Sorry, I'm going back to my little kids. Days. Come back. Having all that gift is amazing. And you open it, and you're like, oh, that's great. But if there is no resurrection, there is no power. Mason just preached on this last week. There is, no, there is no hope, there is no life without a resurrection. So we have to have a resurrected son. Now I'm going somewhere with this. Romans chapter 6 and verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. So he died once, but he ain't dying again. He's alive in and of his own power. That makes him the only begotten. Because any person that's ever lived that was raised from the dead died again didn't they? There's only one who God raised from the dead who never died again. That's the only begotten. Death had no more dominion over him. Acts 13, verse 33. Oh, you got to get this. Acts 13, verse 33. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I what? When does Jesus become the begotten? the day of his resurrection. You can see that in Psalm 2, verse 7. You can check that out for yourself. When you read John 3, 16, he's not talking to little, ba little baby Jesus, the only begotten son laying in a manger. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a virgin born, sinless, sinful sacrifice who rose up from the dead. That is what he's talking about. That is the beautiful gift that God 
gave us. All right, so let's, let's bring this full circle then because perfect gifts require a giver. Perfect gifts re- require a, a gift and it has to be a G because it's got to work. Perfect gifts require a getter, right? Perfect gifts require a getter, a recipient, somebody who receives the gift. But notice what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Why would he do that? That whosoever, you see that? That whosoever. So question on the table then, who is the gift addressed to? You ever seen the presents under the tree? And every little kid, what do they do? They go to the tree to find out which one has their name on it. Right? Which one has, my, has the name on it? Which one's mine? Which one belongs to me? Who is, who is this perfect gift addressed to? Well, the Bible says here is whosoever. It's whosoever. In other words, that's regardless of who, regardless of where, regardless of when, and regardless of worth. In other words, all are qualified. Your name is on the gift. I don't care what a Calvinist says. I don't care what a Reformed theology says. Your name is on the gift. This is available for all at all times. The Bible says whosoever. Amen? The Bible says whosoever. So the next question then, well, then how does the gift get open? If that's the perfect gift, then how does the gift get open? Well, it says whosoever believeth in him. In who? A virgin born, sinless, sinful sacrifice that resurrected. That's who, a begotten son. That is how you open the gift. It's done through belief. Now we know these verses. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. We know these verses. Check this out. That if thou, he makes it very personal, very individual, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart, not mental, not understood, not, it's not a mental thing. This is a spiritual thing. And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Why? For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Amen? Verse 13, we don't have it up on the screen, but whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how does somebody get saved? How do you open the gift? It's believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. It is not by giving God a try. It is not by coming to church. It is not by singing a few songs. It is not by baptism. It is not by giving a little bit. It's not done by earning. It's not done by knowing the story. It's not done by impressing God. It's not even believing that God exists. You can believe God exists, but you don't, may not even know him. The devil's believing God and they tremble. It's not open because somebody passed it down to you. God only has sons and daughters. He doesn't have grandchildren. Amen? And so salvation doesn't just pass on to the next generation. My great nephew needs to be saved. Just because mom and dad are saved does not mean that he gets it. He has to believe in his heart. He has to confess with his mouth. And for sure, it's not because somebody's been pre-chosen by God. It's a whosoever. That's who gets to open the gift. And, And it's those who believe in their heart and confess with your mouth, not those who God has pre-selected from time past to be determined who's going to be saved. But I digress. Let's take it a step further then. What's the next question we need to ask? 
What should those who don't, what happens about those who don't open it? Because I'm betting. I'm betting there's somebody in this room or listening online right now. This is you. Well, you know the Jesus story. You've got notes. You've got all those things. You could lay out the gospel. All those things, but you've never believed in your heart. and You've never confessed your mouth. You've been relying on baptism or church attendance or family or this or that. You're a good person. Your goodness doesn't match up to godness, and so that, that disqualifies you. You need this gift. So what about those who don't open the gift? Well, verse 17 gives us a clue. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Why did Jesus come? To condemn the world? Nope. He did not come here to make sure everybody understood their their deadness. He didn't come here as proof and say, okay, now you're condemned. He doesn't say that. Why did Jesus come? He, He came that the world through him might be saved. Because it says this in verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned. What's the next word? Already. Already condemned. All mankind is condemned. Because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Not little baby Jesus, not believing that God exists, none of that. The qualification is you have to believe in a virgin-born, sinless, sinful sacrifice who resurrected. If you don't have that, then you don't have the gift. And the Bible says if you have not opened that gift by believing your heart and confessing your mouth, the Bible says you are already condemned. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation. Well, what does it mean to be condemned? Here's, what, here's, what, here's how people get condemned. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth, sorry, he that doth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. So what happens to those who don't open it? Here it is, simple. Eternal separation from God. Remember, salvation is not to a where, it's to a who. got to get that. Salvation is about me going to heaven. No, salvation is about me being reconciled to holy, merciful, righteous God. That's what salvation is. And so somebody who has not received that gift, and maybe that's you today, the Bible says you have condemnation on you. And I say that not to condemn you even more. It's to let you know where you are. You are in desperate need of a perfect gift. And you might be thinking, what about every other Yahoo in here? Agree. That's why many of us in this room opened it. Because we recognized our sinfulness and our need for that perfect gift. Because you're no different than any, any of us. We're all just as sinners as anybody else. I am chief. Just hang out with me for a little bit. You'll figure that one out real quick. In essence, you are the walking dead and you are condemned. 
But the greatest news on the planet is that God does not want that for you and God doesn't want that for anyone. That's why he came on a rescue mission. If you don't know him as Savior, man, oh man, can I refer you back to the next that last point we just made? Then you need to open the gift. You understand that Jesus died for you took your sin upon himself, died the death that you deserve, took your condemnation upon himself, was buried and rose again to conquer sin, death, and hell, and he offers you eternal life with him if you would just believe and accept it. That is the gift. Will you open it today? Would you, come to, would you call on him to save you today? And for those of us, some of us, man, we've prayed and we, we've called on the name of the Lord and we still think we don't fully grasp what God gave us. Because it's simple, isn't it? Remember that moment you're like, I don't know what to do. How do I get right with God? And then God brings you to this moment. I remember Haley Carlin. I'm going to talk about you just for a moment. It was this time, what, four or five years ago, something like that. It's been a minute. God dealt with her who grew up and now she had religion. And she recognized religion wasn't going to save her. And it rocked her to the core. And it was freezing that day. We went out and sat in a stairwell. And I just laid out the Romans Road. Verses she knew. Verses she could quote. But they were different that day because she recognized that gift was for her. And I remember, it's just so simple. You believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. It's, I mean, that's it. That's it. You're like, I think we make it bigger than it is, right? And so, man, she prayed and let out this like sigh that a teenage girl, you know, is carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders, you know, just like, whew. and you almost see in her eyes like, well, that was awesome. Is that it? Like, that's it? Yeah, that's it. Because you see, when you open the box and you open that gift, it's nothing tangible. There's nothing you hold. There's nothing to touch. There's nothing to feel except peace, right? Joy, freedom, no longer condemned. Holy cow, to see the change in somebody's countenance in that moment. And that's happened for many of us in the room. Praise the Lord. But what do I get when I open the gift? It says, but have everlasting life. Salvation is not you now having a ticket that's going to get you entry into heaven. That's how I always viewed salvation. I always viewed, oh, I'm saved. That means my name is written in the book of life. That's what the Bible says for sure. And so I always believed all the pearly gate things with the Apostle Peter at the gate. You know, I, was, I always pictured the pearly gates and, Jesus, and, and, Paul, and Peter, Peter, Paul, doesn't matter. Mary's there too. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Right, so they open up the gates and I'm, I'm walking in. Hey, who are you? Well, my name's Tony. My name should be on the reservation list. That's how I always viewed salvation. And that's not at all what it is. I always viewed that there's something different in me that I get, I get to just show up and be in heaven. The Bible says, no, I have everlasting life. That's present tense. Do you get that? So think about this. This holy, awesome, merciful God loves a fallen, sinful world. 
and that makes no sense. And the only way that this fallen world can come to know this holy, awesome God is they're never going to get to him. So he has to come on a rescue mission for them. And he does it because he loves us. And it makes no sense why he does it. And yet he comes to a people that's already condemned because we love our darkness and we love our sinful deeds. And when the light shines on it, we hate it. Echo. We hate it. Because we see ourselves for who we are and we, we now see this holy awesome God sees us for who we are and he gives us a gift and we open it. And he leaves us here. Like what the what? He leaves us here. And we are card carrying everlasting life. People walking around this planet. And we carry that gift in us and with us in the midst of a crook and a perverse world who according to Titus chapter 3 is foolish and disobedient and hateful and all those things. We are not the condemned. We are those who are truly living. Think about that just for a moment. Salvation is not something you get one day. It's something you have, present tense. You have everlasting life right now. It's yours. That's why to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord because it's an instant. I already have it. I'm here, but I'm also seated in heavenly places. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Explain that one. Can't. Can't wrap my mind around that one. But I do know this, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25, and this is the promise that he had promised us, even eternal life. You have it. Present tense. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. Hath given it. It is ours. It is in our possession. You have it right now. It's not a reward in the future. Live like you're living. And this life is in his son. It's not in you. You're not the one who holds it. Christ, who is our life, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. When he shall appear, we shall be in his presence. All right, so check this out. He that hath the Son of life, hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God, what's the next phrase? Hath not life. You're in one of those two camps today. You're not on your way. I'm making my way there. No, no, no. Either have life or you're the walking dead. Which one are you today? You say, Tony, I, I don't know that we need to have a chat. Because you could have the greatest gift ever today. And so we're going to go our separate ways here in just a few moments. We're going to stand in just a few moments and we're going to pray and we're going to do some soul, see soul seeking, all those things. But if you need somebody to talk to, you don't know for sure that you're saved, I'm going to ask you to do something super brave. I'm just going to ask you to come and make your way right here, man, woman, whatever. And we'll plug you in with somebody who would love to talk with you and, how, and share with you how you can know Christ as your Savior. Take you in another room, open up the Word of God, and share with you the exact same message that I had the opportunity to give to Haley, that I had the opportunity to give to Easy, that I had the opportunity to give to Scott. And these are people who I got to sit and watch as they called out and opened this gift. It's a beautiful thing. So let me end with this. 
Perfect gifts require a giver. That's you. You are now the giver. And perfect gifts require a gift. That's that gospel of the everlasting life that you have in you. And perfect gifts require a getter. And that's the whosoever that you're willing to give it to. You see, it drives me nuts when people try to say, well, God's only pick and chooses who gets saved. Well, how's that any different than the way that I live my life? Because I get to pick and choose who gets saved too by sharing the gospel or not sharing the gospel. How dare I? No, if, if it's truly whosoever, then that's every who, everywhere and every when. All are qualified. So please be the perfect, be that giver with that gift to any getter. Let's stand together. What a verse. Isn't it awesome? I just love John 3.16. It's a great, great verse. How many of you see it in a new light, maybe? New, new light? All right, praise the Lord. Let's walk in the light of it. Let's get busy. Know what God's called us to. So let's spend some time. Let's just go to the Lord. Spend some time with the Lord. And maybe there's somebody here who says, you know what, I don't know for sure that I'm saved. I haven't opened that gift. I would love to talk to you. I know it's going to take a lot of bravery. I'm going to ask that you just step out of where you are as we pray, and you come up front, and uh, we'll, we'll take you to another room and share with you how you can know Christ. Don't forget there's a meeting right after this for our uh, connections team, uh, but let's do some business with the Lord, and then I'll close this out. Lord God, I thank you for your holiness. I thank you for your, your righteousness, Lord, and your wrath. But Lord, because that helps me to fully understand the gift, Lord, that you've given. Lord, I, I thank you. I thank you for your truth that's, that's found in these verses, especially this one verse. Lord, I pray as we go our separate ways today that we'll truly understand the perfect gift, Lord, that you've given us. Lord, I pray for those here who do not know you as Savior. Lord, I pray that today would be the day, Lord, that you would not let them have rest, not let them have peace, Lord, that they would need to call on you for salvation. Lord, I pray for those here who have been saved and have been saved for a, a long time. Lord, I pray that uh, this will re regenerate them and, and rejuvenate them and restore to them the joy of their salvation. Lord, I pray that we would fully understand our job now is to be the giver with the gift to any getter. We ask all this in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.